Howdy y'all, this is The Fixed Star. Today we are talking about what might be one of the most important Supreme Court opinions of all time, and it deals with compelled speech. And that, that, um, that opinion is West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett, and it establishes some foundational principles. And from there we're going to talk about Tinker, and then we're going to look at the, how these cases have bearing on a very important case that's before the Supreme Court that very well could be decided this coming week or very soon, uh, Mahanoy versus BL. And with that, we're just going to jump right into it. So before talking about Barnett, we have to look at a case which Barnett was decided in 1943. And then 1940, a case was decided called Gabitis, uh, Minersville School District versus Gabitis. And that took place in Pennsylvania. And the reason we have to talk about Gabitis beforehand is because it's a rare instance where the Supreme Court made a definitive ruling and then just three years later it said, you know what, we were actually not right about this. And they made the exact opposite ruling, which David, oh, I guess I, sh I need to introduce the other folks with me. David L. Hudson Jr., my good friend and mentor, is coming in from Nashville. And uh, Sam Bass is here as well, my other good friend and cousin. Uh, we are both in Texas, and so this is an, an interstate uh, conversation today. Um, anyway, so, goodbye. And uh, the reason I mentioned Hudson is Hudson is my mentor, Belmont Law professor right now, First Amendment uh, expert extraordinaire, so I'm bound to say something uh, pertaining to my vagaries and vicissitudes, as uh, Hudson refers to it. So if I, if, I, if I get astray here, just correct me. But so back to Gobitis. The late 30s, there's, we're, we're, there's some Jehovah's Witness, Witnesses in a strong uh, Catholic town, and they're getting a bit of bullying because they don't want to conform to flag salute, flag uh, pledge mandates, and they refuse to go along. And they're getting some, some flack from other students in the school district. And the school district actually re reprimands these students. And... The family fights these reprimands, and it makes it all, all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, you know, it's, it's, it's okay for the school district to mandate that the students must salute the flag. Actually, in this instance, someone went so far as, the, one of the teachers went so far as to try to pull the student's hand out of his pocket to salute the flag. And the reason that these students didn't want to salute the flag is they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And the Jehovah's Witnesses take the admonitions to not idolize symbols or graven images in the Bible very seriously. So that's how, that's the background ruling of Gobitis. The action took place in the late 30s. The Supreme Court ruled on it in 1940. Now, if we look into the 40s, during the fervor of World War II, uh, West Virginia actually passed some statutes to the effect that it mandated students must Salute, must salute and must pledge their allegiance to the flag as a matter of law, not just school policy, but actually as a matter of codified law. So in Barnett, similarly, Jehovah's Witnesses students now in West Virginia, not in Pennsylvania, are find themselves in the exact same situation. And there, these, actually, I'll go ahead and read the specific uh, verse that they that they that was cited in the case as not, and I'm they they use the King James version in the in the in the uh, case, but I'm looking in the ESV. It's a little more easy to engage with. 
but it says in Exodus 20, verse 4 through 5, actually I'll go through 6 because I think it gives good context, but it says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so, not to suggest that those that say the pledge are not taking that seriously necessarily, but I think it's easy to say that Jehovah's Witnesses take that extremely seriously. And they said, you know, the parents said, told the kids, you guys aren't doing that at school. And the, there were criminal sanctions that were levied potentially uh, jail sentences as long as 30 days that would be levied against parents who didn't go along who 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 uh didn't let their kids go along with the pledges so when this case went all the way to the supreme court the court looked at looked at this case and said look this is compelled speech and even though in gabitis you can you can see how after the gabitis ruling the legislature in west virginia might have said the Supreme Court just ruled on this, ruled on this, it's okay for us to want to establish nationalism, establish feelings of patriotism in our students. Actually, uh, I have, uh, let me see my notes here. What, what some of the reasoning put forth was to teach, foster, and perpetuate the ideals, principles, and spirit of Americanism, and increase the knowledge of the organization and the machinery of the government. So they were, objectively, the legislature was trying to foster those feelings of patriotism, of pride in the nation. And this is during World War II when tensions are high, when the, national, the nationalist feeling is very strong, which is interesting when the, this case was ruled the way it was at this time in favor of the students. And actually, this, there's a, some language that I would like to read from this, from this case and Jacob, if I may, if I may, yeah, absolutely. One of the things I think is important to add is, is a little bit of historical context. So after the Gobitis decision, there was widespread uh, public opinion that Jehovah Witnesses were traitors, and they were not loyal to the United States of America, who was fighting the, you know, the axis of evil. And so there was a wave of violence perpetrated against Jehovah Witnesses across the country. Um, according to historian Sean uh, Francis Peters, there's as many as 4,000 incidences of physical violence uh, perpetrated against Jehovah Witnesses across the country. And that caused uh, three sitting justices on the United States Supreme Court, Justice Frank Murphy, Justice William O. Douglas, and Justice Hugo Black, to take a very unusual step, and they actually announced from the bench that they got it wrong in Gobitis. And that's not something that U.S. Supreme Court justices normally do, right? Uh, they, they usually have a little bit of hubris, right? Um, and so the court, the Supreme Court was actually looking for a case uh, to overrule Gobitis. Because as Jacob said, it normally takes decades upon decades for the United States Supreme Court to overrule one of its prior decisions. You know, if we look at uh, Brown versus Board of Education, <clears throat> May 17, 1954, probably the most celebrated Supreme Court decision in history, right? That overruled a case called Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, that took 58 years. 
So the fact that, as Jacob said, that the Supreme Court in Barnett overrules one of its prior decisions only three years before is really unheard of. Uh, but that, that's part of what led the court to, uh, to view things differently. Yeah, thanks for that, that insight. And I, and I suppose that it's even more unusual given the height. I, I guess the closest thing that in my lifetime is the, the years after 9-11 where we could imagine the, where I can identify with that national fervor, you might say, where that, that feeling of national unity, the kind of let's all get on the same page. I mean, how much more intense must that have been during that time? Uh, so th that even makes it more unusual that the case would go that way and that they would be announced in that manner. Well, and I think the context is interesting not to go off on a tangent before we get into the other cases here, but <clears throat> like this decision is important because the people who are being protected at this point are kind of being seen as anti-American. And so it's important to set up a groundwork, even though you disagree with it personally in the moment, because now we're seeing it almost 100 years later, where it's the opposite. It's, it's people who are wanting to be seen as patriotic who are now feeling like they need this framework to say what they want to say. And so I think yeah, that's just, it's important to separate like what you want in the moment versus what's right moving forward because you know you never know when the shoe's going to be on the other foot. That's an excellent point. You know, the First Amendment protects all points of view, right? It protects majoritarian viewpoints and it protects minority viewpoints. And the thing about the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment is it you know can be viewed as a profoundly counter-majoritarian doctrine. In the sense that, you know, the Jehovah Witnesses were an extremely unpopular religious minority. But on June 14, 1943, Flag Day, incidentally, the United States Supreme Court rules in favor of them. And that's, that's a, a shining example of the court protecting the rights of those who are not in the mainstream, who are not in the uh, advancing, you know, what is popular. Absolutely. So that's a great lead into the, the language I was specifically going to read from that opinion, which is where we, we get the name of our project here, the fixed star. And Justice Jackson writes, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official higher petty can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. Now, that's just, first, first of all, just the language there is beautiful. And Hudson, uh, Hudson, we've talked about this ad nauseum, but man, what a writer. Yeah, it's Justice Robert Jackson. And what's uh, fascinating about that is that at the, at the United States Supreme Court, there are nine justices. There's one chief justice. And the chief justice at the time of the Barnett decision was Chief Justice Harlan Fist Stone. And Harlan Fist Stone was in the majority. Because Barnett was a 6-3 decision. And he was the lone dissenter of Gobitis, too. Is that, exactly. Am I right? Exactly. Yeah. He's the lone dissenter of Gobitis. So many people speculated at the time that Chief Justice Stone would want to assign the opinion to himself, and he would write it. That's one of the great powers of the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, is that if the Chief Justice is in the majority, he or she can take the case for himself 
or assign it out to another justice in the majority. And I think for society's benefit, uh, Chief Justice Stone assigned the opinion to Justice Robert Jackson. And as Jacob alluded to, uh, Justice Jackson is probably the greatest wordsmith that we've ever had sat on the United States Supreme Court. I mean, the language, that, that fixed star language is just majestic. And every time I read that, it gives me chills. Yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful, a beautiful uh, uh, piece. And and actually, you know, there, there's some other language of his I'd like to read from there. And so this is from a portion where he's describing. Uh, he's addressing the issue kind of what's the big deal about forcing someone to salute a flag or to say the pledge? Like, is, is it that big of a deal to where we actually need to have this protection? And he notes the significance of of symbols. And he, he's, t- so he's, he's talking about that issue, and he says, there's no doubt that in connection with the pledges, the flag salute is a form of utterance. Symbolism is a primitive but effective way of communicating ideas. The use of an emblem or flag to symbolize some system, idea, institution, or personality is a shortcut from mind to mind. Causes and nations, political parties, lodges, and ecclesiastical groups seek to knit the loyalty of their followings to a flag or a banner, a color or design. And so and he, he goes on, I'm going I'm to stop there, but he's, uh, he's noting the, the weight of these ideas and how important something seemingly benign. I think, I mean, Sam and I, I don't, I don't know how, what this was like when, when you were a kid growing up. Did, did you say the pledge at school when you, when you were a kid? I did. Yeah. We, we, I just, I, we went to the same schools. So, but, um, I didn't really think about it very much. It almost became like a perfunctory utterance. I mean, I think I also had chapel before school sometimes, and there's sometimes you say the Lord's prayer and it's very meaningful. And there's sometimes you do it and it's, it's like tying your tie. It's just a thing you do. Um, so it's, I, 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 just, I guess I'm just noting that it's interesting. I think we don't, we don't think about the kind of liturgical power of things a lot. And it's interesting these kids very much did, or at least their parents did on their behalf, or, and they were forced to. So, and, and as the justice notes, the, these symbols are not benign, they're not arbitrary, but they're endowed with great meaning. And part of that meaning is they protect, like the flag protects even your ability to not pledge your allegiance to it. So I think we've, we've talked enough about, about uh, Barnett. I wanted to ask you to, share a bit about tinker uh with us and i I should mention for those who might who might be listening to this uh, that are unfamiliar with with uh david he literally wrote the book on the subject let the students speak a great book great treatise on the issue of school speech and uh with that if you want to tell us a bit about tinker yeah uh, yeah so you know we just talked about barnett and barnett was important for you know, two fundamental reasons. One, it established that students have some level of First Amendment rights, right? The First Amendment is in play now. Um, and it's also important because the court establishes, Jacob said earlier, the, the no compelled speech doctrine, right? The state couldn't force these students to to utter the, the pledge, right? So normally when we think about the First Amendment, we think of somebody speaks and then they get punished, but Barnett established that the First Amendment also protects us from being forced to speak. But what Barnett didn't do is it didn't give us a clear standard. 
All right, how do we know when public school officials violate the First Amendment? Well, it took about 25 years until we got Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community Schools District in 1969 that the United States Supreme Court actually laid down a test for determining when public school students violate the First Amendment. Uh, the Tinker case began in December of 1965 when a group of parents and children met at the Eckhart home in Des Moines, Iowa, to discuss various ways to protest U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. And at that meeting, someone, it's not clear who, but someone raised the idea, well, let's have the public school students wear black peace armbands as a form of symbolic speech to protest U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, to support Senator Robert Kennedy's Christmas truce, and to mourn those who had died in the conflict. And so Mary Beth Tinker wore a black peace armband to her middle school. John Tinker wore one to his high school, and the late Christopher Eckhart wore, wore one to his high school. Public school officials in Des Moines, Iowa, learned of the impending black armband protest, and they quickly passed a no black armband rule. Now, what's fascinating about this is they selectively targeted a specific symbol associated with a specific political viewpoint. Students were allowed to continue to wear iron crosses. They were allowed to conti continue to wear political campaign buttons. But the black peace armband was forbidden. And Jacob, that's what we know today as viewpoint discrimination, right? Perhaps the most fundamental of all free speech principles in our jurisprudence is the government may not discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. So they and wear these armbands to school. Yeah. If, if I might just interject yeah. for a second for those outside of the legal education context, the court generally treats those as the most egregious infractions where they know where they're, they can see legislative history or the, the things leading up to a, a policy. They can see that it's targeting specifically not just the law but they everything all the impetus behind the law is intended to target that speech that's when the court is like the least uh lenient on the offender absolutely and the reason for that right is we don't want the government punishing freedom of thought right because if 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 you allow the government to target a specific viewpoint what you're really allowing the government to do is engage in a form of thought control and that's anathema to, uh, to to the First Amendment and and our in uh, a free society. So Mary Beth Tinker, John Tinker, and Christopher Eckhart wear their black armbands and they're suspended. And with help from the Iowa ACLU, they challenge that uh, their suspensions in federal court. And the case goes before a federal district court judge named Roy Stevenson, who was a decorated military veteran. And he rules against the students. He said, look, as long as the, as the rule is reasonable, uh, then, then it's constitutional. And it's reasonable for school officials at this time. The Vietnam War is an incredibly divisive public issue. Uh, some students at the school, at the area schools, had actually lost family members to the conflict. It's reasonable to prohibit this. The Tinkers then appealed to the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and that court uh, divides evenly four to four, I believe. And if a higher court divides evenly, the lower court stands. So the, the court of last resort 
was the United States Supreme Court for the Tinkers. And on February 24, 1969, the court ruled 7-2 to two in favor of the students. Majority opinion written by Justice Abe Fortas, and he writes, quote, it can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. And he said that students are persons under the Constitution, and they give us a test. And the basic test is that public school officials may not prohibit student speech unless they can reasonably forecast that that expression will cause a substantial disruption of school activities or invades the rights of others. And what's so significant about this is that's still the leading standard in K-12 student speech law today. Does student speech cause a substantial disruption or does it invade the rights of others? And so that's what's known in the shorthand as the substantial disruption test. And that's, I think that's a great segue into talking about Mahanoy for a bit, which that's a, an issue involved. I mean, I guess both these cases are involved in some sense in Mahanoy, but particularly the substantial disruption test. So in Mahanoy, that's a, which is the case that's currently before the Supreme Court, a young lady was applying or sorry, trying out for the cheerleading team, not applying and for the varsity cheerleading team. And she didn't get it. And she was ticked off as one can understand. And so she was down the street, not on school campus. And she uploaded a Snapchat saying, I think something like F cheerleading at the school that that's kind of just uh, kind of pissed off rant, which I'm glad my pissed off rants from my age, from my youth are not <laughs> <laughs> recorded anywhere. And uh, was it not also on a Saturday? Was that also part of it? It wasn't so even Saturday, on a Saturday afternoon outside a convenience store, which, you know, and that, that raises, Sam, that raises the specter of how far does the arm of school authority extend? Right. We know that a public, public school officials could punish her for dropping F-bombs in the school hallway or in the school classroom or even in the school gymnasium or cafeteria. But do public school officials have the authority to punish a student for Saturday afternoon speech, however frustrated it may be? That's a very interesting question, right? We, do we want school officials to be the social media police? And I think it's important to understand in Mahanoy, we're not talking about cyberbullying. Um, the student was not, she was mad because she couldn't progress from junior varsity cheer to varsity cheer. She was not targeting a specific student. This is not cyberbullying. So one of the things I think it's important to understand is when the court issues its decision later this month, and it's coming this month, they're probably not going to say too much about cyberbullying or harassment or true threats. In those areas, public school officials are probably at the zenith or the peak of their regulatory power. Uh, but it, but it's, it's very questionable to me, first of all, whether this Snapchat, as Sam says, which was issued on a Saturday afternoon, caused any type of substantial disruption. You know, it didn't prohibit anybody from cheering. You know, the school district keeps claiming team cohesion and it upset the morale of the team. Well, I played high school basketball, 
I know Jacob played high school basketball. Probably not as well as me, but he played high school basketball. <laughs> I mean, I heard more F-bombs in the huddle from my coach or in the paint when I was getting an elbow from an opposing player than, you know, Brenda Levy said in a, in a Snapchat video. I mean, are we really, are we really going to get to the point where we're going to criminalize uh, or, you know, punish the use of foul language when it's completely off campus. You know, I, I just, I just can't imagine that that's a substantial disruption at all argument, both justice Stephen Breyer and justice Sonia Sotomayor made that very same point in oral argument. How is this a substantial disruption? Well, and I think obviously it's important because social media is not going anywhere. And then in light of the last year with classes being pretty much entirely virtual, it's like we're, where is the school gay house now? Is it in the student's living room where they're attending a class on their laptop? You know, how, how, how far does that extend? In, exactly. And that's what, this is such an unsettled area of law, right? You know, previously, we've had several of these cases been appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And time and time again, the court has assiduously avoided deciding these thorny questions. But look, school administrators need to know how far the, the, their arm of authority extends. Parents deserve to know. You know, I signed on to an amicus brief in this case. Uh, I was one of eight so-called law and education professors uh, who, who filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, in support of uh, BL, the student, because we're saying, look, man, I mean, isn't this a matter of parental discipline? You know, if my child is uh, posting Snapchats with F-bombs, you know, I, I, I would want to be, I would, I would probably exercise some discipline. But it's my right as a parent to exercise that discipline. Is it, is it the right of the school when it's completely off campus? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point. And I'm, I'm reminded of, I, you're going to know where this is, but there, there's some opinion where it says something like, we need to be preparing students for citizenship. And part of that preparation is allowing them to exercise constitutional rights. Do, do you recall what I'm... Yeah, you're referring before? to Barnett. Justice Jackson said something that they are educating the youth is reason for scrupulous protection of the constitutional freedoms of the individual, lest we strangle the free mind at its source and teach youth to discount important principles of freedom as mere platitudes. And the First Amendment is not a mere platitude. You know, it is arguably what Justice Benjamin Cardozo referred to as the matrix. It's the indispensable freedom. It's the freedom that allows us to exercise the other freedoms that are protected in the Bill of Rights, right? And that's why this case is, is, is uh, so important. Nice. It's nice to have your uh, encyclopedic recall on hand there. I appreciate that. <laughs> Well, so, it's, a, you know, yeah. it's really important to, to talk about because it, you know, it, at the end of the day, it impacts millions and millions of people because we've got millions of public school students and millions of public school teachers and administrators. And uh, we need to have some guidance on, on where exactly the line uh, uh, of school authority ends and, and um, the rights of parents begin. Yeah. And, and to, to that end as well, and back to kind of what I was just saying, you were talking about the basket being on the basketball court. And I, you know, I had a similar experience playing basketball. Like people are not 
being nice to each other. And that's kind of the world. Like once you get out of school, people are out there saying whatever they want. And we don't do society any favors by certainly in, in, in our youth, we need some degree of protection. Sure. But we don't need a, kids being totally whitewashed, like having their, their in, in interactions totally uh, safeguarded because how, how does that prepare anyone for being out in the world in, in a particularly divisive time? Uh, and, and I don't, I don't really think it does. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, it's important to mention in Manoy too, that it, it's debatable if the court is going to simply the, the lower court below the so-called third circuit simply held really that uh, Tinker didn't apply to purely off-campus online speech. Um, and, and it's important to understand, right, Tinker involved speech that took place at school, right? Mary Beth and John Tinker were on school grounds when, we, when they wore the black peace arm brands. And one of the arguments that the ACLU of Pennsylvania made in behalf of student BL is that, you know, she was not a student at this time, right? She was a, somebody who should receive the full panoply of, of First Amendment protection. She wasn't even on school grounds. Um, one of the things I think that, 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 that I'm hoping that the justices will do is, is that they will tell us when exactly Tinker does apply. Right. I mean, in order for Tinker to apply, I think at the very least, there has to be a very clear connection or nexus between the off-campus online speech and something that happens at school. If we don't require that nexus, that connection between the two, then we really have devolved into a situation where uh, public school administrators are the, are the social media police. Yeah, then it's not so much like the the students don't shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gates language, but it's more so like the school may extend the schoolhouse gates as far as they want and grant constitutional rights as they see fit. And particularly because, well, she was at a convenience store posting something, but a student could just as easily be at home in the middle of the night in their bed posting something to to like something to Instagram or or their Facebook and then the school now has has a jurisdiction over that and that's certainly not a situation I think anybody wants um, but that's certainly possible if, if the ruling goes the other goes for the for the school district yeah and I mean then the the court t- could take the case and just say well you know, Tinker does apply, but there has to be a clear nexus. And even if there was a nexus, there's no substantial disruption here, right? I mean, one way of deciding this case is say, okay, it's it's not, you know, it wasn't temperate speech, right? She, you know, shouldn't be dropping F-bombs. But can we really say it was a substantial disruption? And that, that leads to another part of the case, right, is that, well, is it different when they're on a team, Right when you're on a sports team, so we're not talking about the school suspending her from school. They're suspending her from participation in um, on this sports team. But you know, think back to high school. That was really important for me to be on the basketball and tennis teams. That was very important to my self identity. That was very important to my self worth. You know, and so I think it's really important for kids that 
um, that there are some limitations on the power of school officials. Absolutely. I think it's uh, been interesting. All these cases have outlined how the First Amendment extends down to K through 12, but then how it also kind of turns around and highlights the First Amendment as, as a greater uh, protection to everybody. And, you know, it, they're kind of uh, microcosms of how it applies in a greater context. And so I don't know if there's been any, uh, David, if you have any examples of how these decisions have impacted other First Amendment issues that maybe take place outside the school? Yeah, great point. Well, first off, I think the, the larger point, and this is going back to what Justice Jackson said in Barnett, is that if we allow public school students to live in an environment where their constitutional rights are not respected, we're going to be fostering an entire generation that does not respect constitutional freedoms. But the Tinker case itself is important because the idea of substantial disruption has been used in a wide variety of different contexts. And so one reason when uh, why speech is not protected is because it has very negative, tangible impact uh, on, on other people or society in general, right? It's, it's a constant tension in society between freedom and security, freedom and order. And to that extent, I think Tinker is very important because this, this reasonable forecast of substantial disruption is a test that, at least in, in theory, has been used in a wide variety of contexts. Well, and I think the, the reasonable disruption is interesting. I, the, uh, I was reading in relation to the uh, walkout that happened a few years ago regarding school shootings, the protests on school shootings, and because um, that definitely seems like a disruption. You have kids leaving in the middle of quizzes, and then now they're getting Fs on quizzes because they didn't finish because they walked out during it, but then they're fighting, you know, is it right for me to fail this quiz while I'm exercising my first right? And yeah, I mean, I think we see a variety of uh, First Amendment issues percolate in the public schools. It's a very rich area of uh, constitutional law, and, it, and it's one, you know, I, I part of my job as an adult is I, I go around and speak to different school districts about uh, First Amendment issues to students and administrators and teachers, et cetera. And one of the things that really resonates with young people is if you can get them talking about their rights. Um, and they love to hear about the Tinker and Barnett and, and these cases. I mean, these are, these are important cases, not just for school law, but they're important cases to understand the First Amendment in general and, and frankly, the United States Constitution and why it's important to have law and freedom in this world, you know? Well, and I think, yeah, going back to the point made in the Barnett decision about how school's supposed to be training you for uh to be a citizen you know and, and you can look and, and lament and say well this girl shouldn't be using such foul language she shouldn't really be posting this and it's like well what a better way to learn to not make that mistake than by making that mistake but doing it in a way where you're not you know completely punished and for uh for making that mistake you know it, it's that balance of what's too much punishment versus you know allowing for mistakes to happen yeah, and the one thing about the First Amendment is, look, it protects a great deal of offensive, obnoxious, and repugnant speech, right? It protects the flag burner, the hate monger, the 
tobacco merchant. You know, uh, the late Larry Flint once said it rather colorfully. He said, if the, if the First Amendment protects a scumbag like me, then it'll protect all of you. <laughs> right? So. Yeah, but I think that's a great point, Sam. Like, it, it, the, the training students for citizenship in that context, they should. we shouldn't be punishing them. Well, first of all, we shouldn't maybe be punishing adults in the way that our society is right now for, oh, look at this person said this thing this one time. Let's take everything they have from them. But particularly, it's it's it should be particularly gut-wrenching to see that happen to a student. And she certainly has been, I mean, obviously she filed this case herself or, but that's not it. And that's not it. That's at no small cost to herself. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's a great point. We're talking about the first amendment in the school context as kind of a microcosm for how it, how it should, how these free thought principles should work writ large in society. That's, um, that's, it's a great point. It's, it's a great thing to be aware of as we watch this case progress um well we're kind of at our target time limit for this this chat um i think we covered the ground we want to so thank you everyone who tuned in to listen and sam and david great talking with you and we'll be uh doing it again sometime soon look forward to it it's fun sounds good yeah all right until next time this is the fixed star thanks